0: Thank you very much. Thank you, Daniel. Thank you very much for this invitation. I'm extremely grateful to be here for the first time in Oxford and uh, to be invited. (coughs) And uh, this does seem a very interesting uh, series of of, uh, conferences. I'd like to be here in a couple of weeks when Judge tafousser is here, he is very well known in The Hague as a very outspoken judge when he is not in his judicial function and <laughs> therefore <laughs> and therefore probably very interesting insights you will get uh, uh, through, through him. My idea for this afternoon is uh, to um, uh, through this short presentation give you a very first idea of what the Special Tribunal for Lebanon is all about as uh, Daniel said, uh, it's a extraordinary, we, we sometimes call it the very special tribune, uh, and um, uh, maybe I'll talk for about 40-45 minutes, if at that point you are still alive, I will be happy to hear uh, questions from you, uh, and maybe we can have some, some, some debate uh, and some discussions. About uh, the STL. What um, actually, I'm still formally a senior legal officer at the Special Tribunal for Lebanon, but I'm on leave at the, uh, now and working in Brussels for another project. Maybe at the end of the of the talk, I can also spend a, a few words about uh, my work there. Um, so we like to think uh, of the STL uh, as part of a family of international tribunals that have uh, uh, come, uh, come to existence into existence from after the Second World War. Of course, the first two uh, tribunals that everybody or most people know about were the Nuremberg and the Tokyo Tribunal after the Second World War. There was a big lull. Uh, after the Second World War, during the Cold War, there was not any International Criminal Tribunal established, despite the fact that the Genocide Convention uh, and many other uh, instruments envisaged the possibility, at least, of having a, an International Criminal Tribunal. This, uh, this period, uh, the, the second generation, we can say, of the, of the International Criminal Tribunals uh, started in the early 1990s uh, as the, the, the Cold War finished when in the face of uh, many violations of international humanitarian law and human rights in what at the time still used to be Yugoslavia um, the Security Council in order to do something created uh, the very first new of this new generation of international tribunals the International Criminal <coughs> Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia Which was established through a Security Council resolution. The year after that, uh, in 1994, the Security Council, in a very similar way, established the ICTR, the International Criminal Tribunal for Rwanda, for the genocide that had occurred. Although a bit different, uh, the two tribunals apply slightly different law and slightly different procedural uh, regimes, but they are very similar. And actually, I was almost going to say that they have the same Appeals Chamber, actually they have two different Appeals Chambers, but the same judges sit on the two Appeals Chambers, and therefore the same judge wears the hat of the ICTY Appeals Chamber when he's deciding on the uh, appeals, uh, appeals of the ICTY, and then uh, wears the hat of the ICTR Appeals Judge when uh, he or she decides about ICTR Appeals. But, but they are clearly very linked. <clears throat> After that, the idea of a, of a truly uh, international criminal court, a permanent court, uh, was was again put forth. Um, funnily enough, to to fight terrorism, the first idea was to do it with the crime of terrorism in mind, which is not now uh, within the jurisdiction of the ICC. But the talks about the ICC uh, started, and in 1998, uh, the um, a statute for uh, the, the statute of the ICC was uh, was adopted uh, in Rome, and then the ICC started working a few years after that. Uh, but this is the idea of having a permanent court. Uh, despite the permanent court, after even after that, uh, a few uh, ad hoc, uh, specific, and uh, what sometimes called also hybrid or internationalized. Tribunals were created. In particular, there were f- there were a few. But in particular, I would like to mention the special court for Sierra Leone that tried uh, that was uh, born through an agreement between the UN and the government of Sierra Leone, uh, and uh, the extraordinary chambers in the court of Cambodia, which was which is another international tribunal. These uh, two tribunals where the ECCC still exists. The special court for Sierra Leone has ceased to exist after its last judgment in the Taylor case. Uh, They were created both through an agreement, through a treaty between uh, the UN on the one side and the government of the concerned country on the other side. Uh, This is, uh, uh, after this uh, introduction, uh, starting to talk about uh, the special terminal for Lebanon, this is what uh, the downtown Beirut uh, on the waterfront uh, of Beirut looked like on St. Valentine's Day uh, in 2005 this was a, a huge blast that killed a former Prime Minister Hariri who was running for re-election and was according to uh, all commentators going to win the elections a few months after and uh, kill, uh, this explosion killed him 21 other people um, and injured uh, more than 100 other people around after this uh, the security council the next day, the security council issued a statement saying that uh, calling the Lebanese government to bring to justice the perpetrators and urged all states to cooperate fully in the fight against terrorism. It was, this was immediately uh, honed in as a, as a case of terrorism and uh, uh, possibly a, a case where uh, which had international relevance. That's why the security council stepped in because Uh, usually the Security Council doesn't uh, involve itself in purely domestic matters and uh, on 25th of February the the UN decided to establish a UN fact-finding mission that was led uh, by um, Peter Fitzgerald and issued uh, a report about one month later Uh, in one month later, in April 2005 uh, the UN then established the UN IC, this is how it's called, the Independent International Investigating Commission, to investigate on, on what happened. Uh, and this was done upon the request of the Lebanese government that said that they needed assistance to investigate the matter. And in December 2005, the, actually the government of Lebanon requested assistance in setting up a follow-up to the investigation. Uh, there was already talk of a possible tribunal to to try any person who would be considered a suspect uh, after the investigation uh, had completed. And uh, in March 2006, the Security Council issued uh, a resolution, and I'm going through these dates very quickly. They are not very important, but it's important to get just a sense of the history, uh, mandated the Secretary General to negotiate an agreement between the UN and the government of Lebanon, just like they had done for uh, Sierra Leone and for, the Cambo- for Cambodia. Uh, they, the two parties in early 2007 signed the agreement, so, but for the UN it's easy. The Secretary General signed, he had the mandate from the Security Council. Uh, from the government of Lebanon, they signed the agreement, but this agreement had to be ratified by parliament. Um, because, of course, it would make an exception to the general rules of the Lebanese constitution, uh, according to which uh, trials have to take place in Lebanon, uh, and according by, by a Lebanese court. So they needed to ratify this agreement. Um, the agreement also uh, required Lebanon to pay for 49% of the expenses of this tribunal. So, of course, there needed to be parlam- parliamentary approval for this. And uh, despite the fact that the majority of the members of parliament uh, wanted this uh, vote to, to, to succeed and actually signed a petition that they they were a majority and they wanted this vote to proceed. Um, The President of Parliament, the Speaker uh, of Parliament, who is the only one in the Lebanese constitutional system who can convene Parliament, refused to convene Parliament for a few months so that this vote could not happen. And uh, uh, so he he refused to to convene uh, the Assembly, and therefore the government, meaning the executive, Uh, requested the UN Security Council to issue a binding Security Council resolution on itself, on Lebanon, uh, to essentially do what the Security Council had done in the Yugoslav case and in the Rwandan case, to establish a tribunal through a Security Council resolution, instead of the agreement that had already been signed, that had been agreed to but could not be ratified. The Security Council issued a, a resolution, uh, 1757, according to which there was es- essentially, I think we are locked in. Yes. <laughs> you, you'll never get out of here. Uh, um, the Security Council essentially issued a resolution giving an ultimatum to Lebanon, saying, uh, unless you ratify by a certain date uh, this agreement, will of course, we cannot make the agreement for you, because of course the law of treaties provides that you have to uh, to, to make the, the agreement yourself, but the provisions contained in the agreement will enter into force through a Security Council resolution. Just like we had done for, the, for Yugoslavia, for Rwanda, and in other cases we are going to impose on you a tribunal with the advantage that you at least in this case have negotiated what is the substance of, the, uh, of this jurisdiction. But we are going to do it. Parliament was not convened and therefore the Security Council resolution entered into force and the the, the tribunal was, in a sense, imposed on on the legislature, Uh, although upon the request of the executive of, of the government of Lebanon. And uh, then the next day, Parliament convened again, because finally the Speaker of the House decided to convene Parliament, but this was not on the agenda anymore, and therefore everybody was happy. Um, this did not mean, of course, that immediately they started uh, uh, working, the STI started working. The investigation by the I C, the Investigating Commission, was still ongoing. Uh, And therefore, the Secretary General decided at a certain point, in his wisdom, uh, to uh, start that the tribunal would actually start operations only on the 1st of March of 2009. They found out just after that that it was a Sunday. So we all had to come in on a Sunday uh, for the inauguration, uh, but uh, I I really don't know why they chose that date. But um, the mandate of the STL uh, is. uh, to prosecute uh, all those that are allegedly responsible of the attack of the 14th of February, uh, the explosion you saw before, but also since there, was, there had been a string of other attacks just before and after, uh, during uh, essentially uh, the period of a bit more than one year, that had uh, targeted other political and, and community leaders uh, in Lebanon, the tribunal was also given the opportunity to um, to the, the mandate to investigate and prosecute uh, any other connected attacks during, between 1st of October 2004 and 12th of December 2005. Uh, these are the dates of two, uh, not random dates, they uh, are dates of two uh, other terrorist attacks. But the tribunal can only prosecute this if it finds that they are connected to the Ariri case. They must be connected in the sense that the, the victim must be a similar type of victim, like a political leader. The perpetrator might be the same, or the modus operandi of the operation of the of the attack was similar. So there must be a connection to the Hariri attack, to the attack of the 14th. And then the tribunal might al- might also be. Uh, might also have jurisdiction over attacks after December, 12 of December 2005, but at that point it requires Lebanon to agree once again to expand the temporal jurisdiction of the tribunal, which has not happened thus far. Although many people have said that there is at least one attack after uh, the the, um, 12th December 2005 that occurred uh, later, a few, a few um, years later, that is uh, the attack against one of the uh, Lebanese officials that was investigating on the Ariri attack, who was killed uh, in, in very mysterious circumstances. The structure of the Special Tribunal for Lebanon is also peculiar and different from that of the other international tribunals you might know. And uh, I'm not going into the, the tiny details, but. Essentially, all the other tribunals are composed of three organs. That is uh, the prosecutor that investigates and prosecutes, the chambers of the judges that have the main task of uh, hearing the evidence and and, uh, issuing judgment, and then the registry that is the administrative hub, in a sense, the management that does everything else that does what, in a normal system, a registrar would do in a, norm, in a, in a domestic court, but also the Ministry <coughs> of Justice, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, the Ministry of Interior would do to support uh, investigation, prosecutions, and trials. In the uh, STL, in the Special Terminal for Lebanon, we also have a defense office that is separate from the other organs that is not meant to defend the accused. Those are private lawyers. Are, these are lawyers. But it is meant to uh, assist the defense teams in uh, preparing, in having the st- infrastructure and anything that might be needed uh, to be on an equal footing with the prosecutor. It's a very interesting uh, um, development in international criminal justice, it's not been followed necessarily by others but uh, I think it's a, it's a very interesting idea and a very interesting uh, uh, organ. Uh, we, like, we, I, can, I can develop it a bit more if one of you uh, is interested. Um, <coughs> with regard to chambers, focusing on, on in particular on the chambers, the chambers uh, currently at the STL uh, are composed of 11 judges. I know that if you add these, they're not 11, but I'll tell you why. Um, there is one pretrial judge who is always an international judge, uh, meaning non-Lebanese. Uh, and uh, he's uh, uh, in charge of confirming the charges and preparing the case for the trial issuing protective measures orders uh, ensuring that disclosure occurs properly between prosecution and defense and so on then there is a trial chamber which is made up of two international judges and one Lebanese judge Uh, that is the trial chamber that is currently uh, uh, busy hearing the first case against five of the accused I will uh, go into that later on, uh, but the Trial Chamber is also, is also has also two additional judges, one Lebanese and one international, as a sort of reserve judges, in case one of the three sitting judges um, has to resign or has uh, health problems and so on, so that the trial can continue, just one of the reserve judges, an international judge, if the missing one is an international judge, a Lebanese judge if the Lebanese judge on sitting on the case has to resign for some reason, will immediately get into the case uh, and will have followed all the hearings and therefore there is no need, there is no delay in the proceedings. This is a lesson learned from the other tribunals where uh, some cases have had, had uh, major problems because one, they last so long that if one of the judges then has to resign uh, or or, is, or even it has happened at the ICTY dies uh, during the proceedings this creates a huge problem and huge delays so there is uh, this idea, uh, a lesson learned from other tribunals. And then there is an appeals chamber at the STL made up of five judges, three are international judges and two are Libanese. Um and this composes the, the, the chambers at uh, the STL currently With regard to what law is applicable at the STL, um, the STL applies, and this is also a difference from the ICTY, ICTR, and also the International Criminal Court, applies domestic Lebanese criminal law. Does not apply international law. It does not apply war crimes, crimes against humanity, genocide. It applies the law of Lebanon um, that is Relates to the Hariri attack and the other connected cases. Unlike the substantive law, the c- substantive criminal law, procedural law is instead uh, a, a hybrid form of procedural law. Lebanon has a very, um, what people would call a civil law system with uh, an investigating judge, uh, an investigating magistrate, uh, and not really an adversarial system. Uh, and therefore, the rules of procedure and evidence are trying to put together the two systems, uh, system, the Lebanese system, but also, on the other hand, the, the fact of have the, the, the preference for having a purely adversarial system during the, the, the hearings of the evidence, uh, because there was an investigating commission beforehand, existing already before, that became the office of the prosecutor and therefore that is one of the parties and you need the other party to be able to challenge the evidence properly in front of the trial chamber and therefore you need an adversarial system. So the rules of procedure and evidence try to uh, find a mixed uh, system but in practice are very similar to the rules of procedure and evidence at the ICTY, at the ICTR and in part also at the ICC, so uh, they are quite different from the Code of Criminal Procedure of Lebanon. Fundamental features of the uh, STL proceedings, and again if some of you are interested I can go into more details Mm -hmm. afterwards, is of course the presumption of innocence and the standard beyond reasonable doubt, that is the standard that can, uh, according to which a person can be convicted only if there is uh, evidence proving his guilt uh, beyond reasonable doubt the hearings are public and it's a purely adversarial proceedings during the hearing of the evidence at least um, the, the the conduct of the proceedings is therefore very similar to uh, what you would have in uh, in England uh, in the US uh, in well even in many other systems where there is this adversarial system in front of a judge, not in front of a jury, so unlike most cases in the US, for example, most high-level criminal cases in the US, for example. Uh, and, but also, but different from the, the system, the typical common law uh, sist- adversarial system, there are no strict rules of evidence. Uh, this is a typical feature taken from the civil law uh, system, from the Lebanese system, that is that uh, the parties can bring any evidence uh, as long as it's probative and relevant and then it's up to the judges at the end of the case essentially, not at the stage uh, of the admission of the evidence but at the end of the case to decide overall on the admissibility and not so much on the admissibility but on the relevance and on the way to be given to the evidence. Therefore, there are very few uh, specific rules on, exclusionary rules and rules on, on uh, technical rules on evidence. Other very unique features that Daniel mentioned before, uh, the first of which uh, Daniel mentioned before, is the fact that the the STL uh, is the first tribunal after Nuremberg to allow trials in absentia. Of course, Nuremberg also allowed uh, trials in absentia. One of the accused was tried in absentia and convicted. They found out later on that he was dead. Uh, So uh, this didn't count for much, but it was possible. Um, The STL is uh, the first modern international tribunal or internationalized tribunal where this is possible. And I can also... uh, I mean, I think this is uh, usually a very... A thorny issue and a very, a, a very interesting uh, issue uh, to discuss of the whys and hows and, uh, and, and uh, of, of having such a trial in the first place. The second a very uh, kind of unique feature, although similar to the International Criminal Court in a sense but different from the typical common law uh, criminal trial, is that the victims can participate in the proceedings. They have a direct a possibility of participating in the proceeding and requesting uh, compensation. They cannot actually, at the STL, uh, they cannot request compensation from the STL, but the STL, if uh, there are victims requesting for compensation about the damage, for the damage that they have suffered, uh, the tribunal can issue an order to a Lebanese court. Or it, it's essentially, its judgment can be used in a Lebanese court a civil court to get compensation so uh, but the victims are participating and actually more than 70 victims are actively participating in the proceedings uh, currently at the STL which is quite an interesting uh, feature and then uh, we have said before it has jurisdiction over crimes of terrorism so it's the first attempt at the international level to uh, try to find uh, the culprits, the, the, the people who might have been guilty of these terrorist acts, not with drones and just killing them, but actually having a, fo- a formal trial and uh, having a trial with all the guarantees and uh, uh, in public with an adversarial procedure and then uh, meeting out a, a sentence after that, So, which I think is, is a very interesting feature without going into uh, too much detail also. Formally, originally, there were two different cases before the STN. The first case was against the the first four accused, Ayash, Badreddin, Onesi and Sabra. And uh, um, and on the 1st of February 2012, the Trial Chamber made a, a finding that it should proceed in absence against these four accused and the trial started on the 16th of January 2014. However, there was a second case against Mr. Merai, who was uh, also found to be... The, the, the there was enough evidence to uh, indict him and to, to confirm the charges against him. And, uh, and therefore, in uh, on the 20th of December 2013, the trial chamber made a different another finding with regard to his... Uh, case that he also had absconded, and therefore there was a reason to have a trial in absentia against him. Uh, and at this point, the trial chamber found itself with two different cases, both regarding uh, the uh, alleged uh, a plot to assassinate uh, Mr. Hariri, and therefore they decided to join the proceedings. This had a, a created a small delay of about six months. Uh, for the overall case but of course this would save a lot of time and resources in having only one trial on the same episode instead of having two separate trials and therefore it was, uh, I mean, the tragedy is a, quite a lengthy decision that takes into account all the pros and cons and they come to the conclusion that the best solution, or the least worst solution was to merge, to join the two cases into one. Um, I have mentioned a little bit uh, the, 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 the phases of the proceedings, I'll not, I will not go into the details unless you have specific questions. Uh, what, uh, something that is particularly interesting with regard to the evidence of this case is the fact that uh, this is also the first international case that is mainly based on electronic evidence. Unlike uh, the cases before the ICTY and the ICTR that are mainly based on testimony, and on uh, documents with regard to the ICTY, much less with regard to the ICTR. Uh, sometimes intercepted uh, telephone communications, uh, because especially in the former Yugoslavia, the various parties to the conflict were intercepting each other. And then these intercepts made, it, made their way to the, to the judges of the ICTY, and therefore, we have lots of uh, intercepted communication. But in this case here, we are talking about a case uh, that the prosecutor has investigated and is now prosecuting mainly on the base of the so-called CDRs, call data records, that are not the content of your telephone calls, but the so-called metadata that, are, uh, uh, that the phone companies and governments can find out about your phone calls and your movements when you have your cell phone with you. And therefore, all these cases, and I will not go into the details but you can look on the website of the STL, There are, a few, uh, there, there is an explanation of this and there are many decisions explaining uh, what this is all about. Uh, the prosecutor is uh, trying to, he has identified certain networks of telephones, they call them networks, meaning uh, telephones that only called each other, uh, that were following Mr. Ariri, in the months before his assassination and then disappeared just the day when he was killed and then they reappeared when other connected cases were um, uh, uh, um, were, were being uh, well, in their investigation of other connected cases but what is important is that there is uh, of course it's difficult to I mean you, you might know that these are phones that are following uh, Mr. Ari, but you don't know who has the phone in, in his or her hands and therefore there is a whole uh, there is a whole exercise of inferences from the locations from the type of phone calls from the few phone calls that apparently these people made outside the, the small circle of the network of the phones, some of the SMS Messages that can be read, because unlike the phone, c- the, the, the content of a the, of the phone call, and so on. So there are other ways in which the prosecutor is saying, and the defense is objecting, saying that these do not prove anything, um, to prove uh, who was actually behind these plots, the, the plot in particular to kill Mr. Hariri. So. And this is a very lengthy process to do it uh, in open court, in an adversarial proceedings, through expert witnesses, through the witnesses, through the people who have sold the SIM cards, who have have seen other people, and so on. And this is taking a lot of time also because of the complexity of making this a, a really public, a real public trial so that the Lebanese people in particular, anybody who is interested, and all these hearings are broadcast on the internet every day, so you can watch them, but in particular, of course, the Lebanese public can have a sense of the type of evidence that is being presented, can make up their own minds about the evidence that is being presented. And what is very interesting is that despite the fact that um, this is a terrorism case, so that are usually, in, even in domestic systems, very, very sensitive. And they have uh, closed sessions or, uh, or all kinds of uh, secrecy uh, around it. There was not one hearing so far at the STL that was not broadcast. Uh, all of the hearings of the regarding the evidence of the case were broadcast uh, with simply a 30-minute delay uh, that is common in international tribunals to be able to redact anything that is said that shouldn't be said but uh, they are all broadcast there are protective measures so uh, many of the witnesses not many, some of the witnesses who, uh, who have appeared at the STL have appeared with their face and, uh, distorted and their voice distorted so that people do not uh, may not understand who they are but of course the people in the courtroom perfectly know very well who they are, but the public should not know the identity of some of these witnesses. These witnesses are addressed to, uh, through uh, pseudonyms. But, but what they say is publicly available. What they say is actually publicly available even in transcripts that are published a few days after every hearing on the website of the STF. So the, the, the attempt of having uh, these the, the proceedings as transparent as possible. And this is very, very interesting also at the the international level. This case, a criminal case based on cold data records is not completely unknown in domestic systems. This is the first time that this happens in an international setting. The the London bombings uh, cases uh, in England were tried, were based on cold data records as well there are many other cases throughout the world that are now using cold data records but still I think it's very very interesting and it's an example uh, of uh, of where international justice might go in the future um, that this is done at the international level in this way I have uh, uh, tried to keep this very brief Uh, I see nobody yet has fallen asleep and uh, uh, Maybe, uh, before, uh, asking if you have any questions, uh, well, no, maybe, maybe let's start with your questions and then, uh, and then I'll...